listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. that I watch or I read and I know I'm never coming back to it again, but there are other things I return to over and over again. Maybe this for you is every year at Christmas time you're watching It's a Wonderful Life, or maybe you prefer the classics like me, so Die Hard is your Christmas movie. (laughs) But regardless, those stories that we return to over and over again, they have to have power, they have to have meaning for us to revisit them. And what does it say about us that year after year, we return to revisit the death of Jesus on Good Friday. This is the lowest moment in our story as the people of God, yet we come back to it again and again. Is what we're doing here some kind of Christian exposure therapy? That by looking at this terrible event, we'd somehow become more okay with it? That we would toughen up to it? No, that's not what we're doing here. We continue to look at the death of Jesus every year because we have the same questions that Jesus gave voice to at the cross. Where is God in the midst of the suffering that we see in this world? Is he absent? What we see Jesus endure on the cross is to take on the suffering and death of the world so that it can be set right at his resurrection. And rather than speaking from outside of our condition, Jesus chose to enter in to take on his body the pain and suffering that we feel so that at his resurrection, it would be healed. We come back to this story over and over again because it affirms the brokenness that we experience and puts forward our only solution. In the text we read today, we've seen the story of Jesus' crucifixion arrayed against the backdrop of the Passover festival. So his betrayal, his trial, arrest, and death They all take place around the events of this feast. And if you've been with us in the past weeks, what we've seen is that John is intentionally arranging his gospel to show that Jesus is choosing the moment of his death. He's choosing when he dies. And this should make us ask, why has Jesus chosen the Passover of all times? Because Jesus has been at conflict with the powers that be in Jerusalem throughout his ministry. He could have forced the issue at any moment in time by performing signs, by claiming his status as a king and riding in on a donkey. What is he trying to say by choosing the Passover? Well, Jesus has chosen the Passover as this moment that he's come to die because it's a day loaded with significance for the Jewish people. It's a day where they remembered that they were passed over by God in Egypt because of the blood of a sacrificial lamb. The center of this meal that they celebrated year after year was a reminder to them that they lived because another died on their behalf. Their salvation came because another was willing to be sacrificed. And throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus make a series of bold I am statements. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the vine. What he's doing at the Passover is he's performing one final I am statement not with his words, but with his life. He's offering himself up to show us he is the sacrificial lamb. 
His blood is poured out so that the sins of the people would be passed over, so that God would pardon us. Jesus has chosen this time for his death. It's significant. But sometimes I think what we do in a modern setting is we get so preoccupied with picking apart the order of events that things start to feel just like a report. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. And I think if that's our takeaway, we're missing something here. Because John and the other gospel authors who give witness to the crucifixion, they don't just give us an emotionless reporting of events. They're intentionally appealing to the Psalms, to the Old Testament, in order to incorporate emotion into what's happening. John's goal in the way that he wrote this narrative is that all of us would feel what Jesus is experiencing on the cross. It's meant to stir something up in us. And in every account of the crucifixion, Psalm 22 is alluded to. It's the title of the psalm that Jesus quotes in Mark when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the original audience, invoking this psalm would have been more than just a sentence to cry out. It would have called to mind its entire contents. It's like for us when we're watching a movie and a melody begins to play, signaling to us that there's an entire theme being presented. Referencing this psalm is meant to draw us into a moment where the psalmist is in a moment of deep despair. He's being punished for something. He's being publicly shamed for something. And yet, in the midst of that despair, he cries out to God, holding on to hope that somehow he will be delivered. John quotes from the psalm, the prayer book of Israel, not just so that we would know an order of events that occurred in Jesus' crucifixion, but so that we would feel what Jesus endured on the cross. Jesus is entering into the pain of suffering and death so that it can be set right at his resurrection. John is giving us a psalm which gives voice to the unspeakable things that Jesus is experiencing. He's inviting us into a shared song because he knows we have felt like Jesus feels in this moment. All of us have had moments where we have asked, God, where are you? And we've tried as best we can to cling on to hope. And so I want to spend a moment tonight reflecting on this psalm. I may be projecting here, I know I'm not very good at approaching the psalms. I feel like we're a people who are not great at poetry. We do a lot better with the order of events. So when I approach the Psalms, I'm reminded of a poem by Billy Collins called Introduction to Poetry. He says, I asked them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem, watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. What I'm inviting us into tonight is I want us to press our ear against this psalm and hear it buzz. I want us to feel what Jesus felt because I think that's what John wanted when he wrote this account in this way. So the psalm begins with the words that we're probably familiar with because, again, Jesus proclaims them on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He continues in the psalm saying, why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? So he's asking, God, where are you? 
the psalmist is in a place of questioning, of asking, how can God still be there given what I'm experiencing? In the next three verses, he takes heart as he remembers who God is. He says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. So the psalmist says, I remember. I remember that you have been there for me. You've been there for my people. And even though this is unspeakably difficult, I can trust. What we see going on in this psalm is it breathes, breathes in and out in this rhythm of doubt and trust. A moment of asking a question of God, where are you? And then a sigh of relief remembering, he will come. And then another accusation raised, but why isn't he here right now if he's been there before? And then trust to say, but he will come again. That's his character. That's who he is. Psalm 22 speaks to what Jesus felt as he endured the cross for our sins, so that in him the suffering of mankind would be put to death. Which at this point, I think it's important for us to say, why did Jesus need to suffer? Maybe the imagery of the Passover is really clear. We can see why Jesus needed to die. A sacrifice was required. But why did he need to endure the humiliation and shame and brutality of the cross? Gregory of Nazianzus, an early church theologian, wrote this. He said, For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. The things that Jesus has not taken on in his body, he does not bring new life to in his resurrection. The way Isaiah puts it is, by his stripes we are healed. For Jesus to take on our suffering means that in our new life, at his resurrection, we too will be free of the suffering that we currently feel in this world. This poem is helping us feel what Jesus has taken on so that we can have hope in what is coming on Easter Sunday. Jesus inhabited this poem. It wasn't just a sentence he threw out in the Gospel of Mark to accuse God of something. Why have you forsaken me? It was something he invoked because he was living in its entirety. I want to walk you through sections of this psalm, and I want you to see how it mirrors his experience. In verses 6 and 7, it reads, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Isn't this where Jesus finds himself? As he looks around at the crowds who have gathered for their own amusement at his death, the people that were supposed to uphold him as king are instead crucifying him. Verse 8, he continues. This is the crowd mocking the suffering one. They say to him, he trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he delights in the Lord. Can't we see the crowds shouting out at Jesus? If you're a king, take yourself down. Can't you hear the voice of the other criminals who are crucified next to him saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us? Psalm continues, it says, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Can you imagine Jesus who's been enduring exposure for hours hanging on a tree, whose 
thirsting and is offered instead the sour wine on a stick. Verses 17 and 18 say, All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Jesus, who's been publicly stripped in order to be humiliated, hangs on the cross to see the only possessions he has gambled over as a game while he dies. Psalm 22 gives voice to the experience of Jesus as he's crushed for our iniquities. John wants us to see that Jesus has experienced this, so we will know whatever we've gone through, he has endured something similar, probably something far worse. He's experienced the depths of pain. Whatever you've gone through, Jesus has endured with you on your behalf so that you might be made right in his coming. Like the psalm, in our afflictions, we lift up our voice to God, asking, where are you? And then we remember God's come before, and we breathe a sigh of relief, and then we ask again, but why isn't he here now? And then we hope that something will change. And in the midst of that back and forth of our lived experience of this psalm, the thing that we need to keep in mind is that Jesus serves as the ultimate evidence that God does indeed love us. In the midst of the wrestling, that breathing in and out that we feel of doubting and trust, we can look at the cross to know God did not remain outside of what we experienced, but he entered in so that we would be made whole. In the original psalm, in verse 22, there's a transition that takes place. So it turns a corner in the midst of the suffering to waiting on a deliverance that the psalmist believes will surely come. He says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. It's a declaration. He's saying, God will intervene to help. But it's notable, John and the other gospel authors do not allude to this part of the psalm. They stop in the suffering of the faithful one. The moment at the cross is pregnant with hope, pregnant with implication, but the birth will not arrive until the tomb is opened on Easter Sunday. And we are meant to linger in the really real suffering and death of Jesus. It's like we've sung the first verse, we're waiting for the chorus, but the band stops playing, they pack up their instruments, and we're left here wondering, what's next? Where are you, God? We are left in silence. And as Jesus hung on the cross, looking around at those who surrounded him, the mouths of lions and the horns of oxen, as verse 21 puts it, with Jesus we cry out, God, will you help us? Will you save us? This is the part of the sermon where I'm supposed to give you application. And I think there are definite things that we can learn from this moment, from the sacrifice of Jesus, things that we can cling to. The main thing I want to do today, though, is I want to ask us to wait. To wait on Jesus, who did something that we could not do for ourselves. Because doesn't it feel like we are waiting for resolution more often than we want? We're a culture who has been conditioned to immediacy. The idea of two-day shipping is appalling to us. We won't even watch a TV show if every episode is not online so we can binge it all in a row because we want to know what the ending will be. We can't deal with a season-ending cliffhanger. We want the ending now. We want to know that it wraps up nicely and neatly. 
And one of the most powerful parts of Holy Week is that we get to endure in real time what the disciples themselves walked through. In silence, they sat at the cross, they saw Jesus die, and they did not receive hope until Easter. And so what I'm inviting us into today is waiting. With the disciples, we wait. As we go from this place, I ask you to sit in the death of Jesus, who serves as our sacrificial lamb, the one who turns away the wrath of God, the one who took on our suffering so that in him we would be healed. Let that waiting prepare you for the joy of Easter, the good news that one has not only conquered death, but he invites us into a new life. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.